The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 89. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie and I are joined by Colby Science instructors, Mrs. Hoxie, Mrs. Bradley, and Mrs. Still. There can be a fear that the study of modern science can lead a student away from the faith and even towards atheism. In opposition to this, our guests shared that their study of science led them to a greater love of God and his creation, and they provide us with an explanation of how using current texts with a love of the truth and a generous sense of wonder added in prepares the student for lifelong learning and helps them to see in creation God's glory and handiwork. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. Today, Stephen and I are delighted to visit with one of the brave souls who came on the relaunched Colby cast in its early days and is now among those most frequently mentioned by other guests when telling us how they came to Colby, Mrs. Elizabeth Hoxie, chair of Colby Academy's science department and instructor of science and theology. Hello, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. It's really great to be back with you. We also get to meet two more science instructors, Mrs. Ann Still, whom many Colby students meet in middle school and have honored several times as Teacher of the Month, and Mrs. Katie Bradley, who teaches middle and high school science courses for Colby. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to have you all here. Mrs. Hoxie, how have you been? I've been well. I think since the last time we spoke, we added another baby to our family. Um, Zeta, Zeta Sophia Hoxie was born last March. It was kind of funny because um, after Zita was born, Mrs. Powers, our math teacher, sent me a Mad Libs that her students had done a full year prior. And the Mad Libs was something like, Mrs. Hoxie loves St. Zita, but I had never had a devotion to St. Zita up until that point. So this was a year before she was born. They had written up this Mad Libs. Yeah, so just little little funny bits of Providence, I guess. Um, we've, We've been doing well, yeah. Good, good. So Mrs. Hoxie made her Kobe cast debut on episode 21, which of course we'll link in our show notes along with some other episodes that are relevant to this one. Mrs. Still, yours is a familiar name in my household. Would you take us to the moments when you learned of Kobe Academy and came on board and share with us whatever else you'd like us to know about you? Well, um, Mrs. Langle and I had children in the same school and we were at carpool one day and, and she said to me, you know, I think you would make a great addition to our school. And she said to send her my resume. So I did. And then she sent me a link to learn all of the software for teaching. And I remember <laughs> laughing and saying, I don't think I actually applied for a job. And she said, oh, just do it. You'll, you know, because I was a stay at home mom at the time. And so I started learning the software and it I always joke, it felt like my brain was being lifted from the ocean floor because I hadn't really done anything academic in years. You had little kids, babies at home, like many of us, you know, in that stage of life. And then after I got rolling with it, I said, oh, this is great. You know, I really would love to get back into teaching. And so it started off as just part-time, one class. And then it seems like every year I added a class until I got to, you know, full time. So now I have six sections and 
I just love it. And it's very self-motivating um, to teach in this environment because the students are just raised with a, a sense of curiosity and wonder and appreciation for learning. And it's so incredible and it's, it's never tiring. It's never cumbersome. It's just joyful. So I love teaching for Colby. I have three children who are not as little anymore, um, fourth grade, eighth grade, and uh, 10th grade. Okay, great. Mrs. Bradley, it's sure lovely to meet you. Tell us about you and how you came to Colby. Well, um, my story with Colby is I, I had been looking um, through curriculum. I homeschool all of my, um, my children except for one. My oldest is a sophomore and he's been home with me since second grade. Um, and so I've used some Colby um, course plans in, in our years. And then I had started online teaching actually English as a second language in 2019, trying to get back into, into teaching. I, I taught before my oldest was born and I really enjoyed it, but I was looking for something different, more normal hours. And um, this email kept popping up from Colby. Hey, we're looking for, um, we're hiring, we're hiring. And I, was, I pushed it away for a little while. And then it finally kept coming back. And I was like, well, I guess I just need to look more into this. <laughs> and, and so I did. And was fortunate enough to be to be hired with Colby for this this current year, and so I have really really enjoyed it. In fact, I'm putting three of mine in next year full time um, because I just am blown away by by Colby and and the type of education, especially through the online school that I'm with. So it's a little bit about me. It has that way of doing it, doesn't it? Like it it draws us in and keeps us there. Yep. So. New to teaching for, for Colby this year, but not new to Colby itself, but all the more involved. That's great. Well, Mrs. Hoxie came to me with this wonderful science stories idea, which I so appreciate. Please take note, listeners, we welcome episode suggestions. You can send those to us by email to podcast at colby.org. Mrs. Hoxie, what inspired this episode? Every year as a department, we set a goal for ourselves for how we want to um, improve professionally and, and personally as well. And so this past year, our goal as a department has been um, to talk about how we teach the relationship between faith and science in the classroom. And so we started off this year with a discussion about our own stories as scientists, um, what our experience has been being scientists, teaching science, and how that uh, how that has played into and affected our faith life. Um, and so, you know, we just started the year by sharing our stories as scientists, and I was blown away by some of the stories shared in our department. And so I just really, I felt that families would benefit from hearing um, a couple of those stories. I, uh, I have heard concerns from parents in the past when their students get to 11th and 12th grade and decide that they're going to pursue a STEM major. And parents have a, a fear that their student is going to go off and study science and lose their faith. And, um, and so I just want them to know that, that that doesn't have to be the case, you know? And so I think sharing these stories will be maybe a little bit encouraging to parents in that situation. I, I was so excited when I received this idea and I've been really looking forward to this conversation and, and hearing your stories because it does seem to be such a top of mind sort of concern. And I know I, I have children who are mechanically inclined, scientifically inclined. And so thinking about them going forward into these fields, I, I do, that is a concern that I have. So I'm, I'm eager to hear your stories. Do you want to start us off with yours? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my my parents are both family doctors. And so, uh, you know, all kinds of conversations happened at our dinner table. So I was never a stranger to science or biology. But I had a really excellent high school biology teacher. And I could tell she was just a very unassuming, very humble person. But I could tell that she genuinely loved the subject that she was teaching. And um, she was also a woman of, of great faith. And so one day we were learning about cell structure and all the organelles. And she showed us an animation that was put together by Harvard University, which I think Bonnie is going to link to in the show notes. Um, but the animation is called The Inner Life of the Cell. And it's just, it's not narrated. Um, it's set to music. But it was just beautiful to see this entire microcosm that's within a single cell. And I knew just right then I knew I wanted to be a biologist and I still show that animation to my students every year and it still takes my breath away. It is just beautiful. Um, and so I ended up double majoring in biology and Catholic theology and had some raised eyebrows about that combination of majors. Um, but I have never, never, ever found the two to be at odds. And honestly, the more that I study biology and, you know, I'm, I'm very much a perpetual student and I, uh, you know, I'm always <laughs> trying to figure out what, what's the newest thing, what's the latest research. And so the more I study biology and, the, and later studying the human body in medical school, the more my faith grew. Pope Benedict talks about the eminent rationality of belief in a creator, and that has, has definitely been my experience. The more I study creation, the more I'm drawn into worship of, of its creator. It's neat getting to know you a bit better by hearing your story this way, and I can relate to the the family business, right? We're talking about growing up, talking, having these discussions in the family business. <laughs> I love how it has led to a deepening of your faith, though, and really uh, recognizing the the traces the signs of God everywhere through His creation. That's wonderful, Mrs. Still. I I hear your voice on our recordings that we watch for self pace, and I know my children have really enjoyed your classes, the the ones they have taken live with you. Would you tell us your science story? Sure. So I have a science education degree, and I started out um, specializing in language arts. And at University of Florida, you chose a specialization for for your um, teaching certificate. So. I chose language arts because that was always the subject that I excelled the most in. I didn't really have a particular interest in science. And we still had to take methods courses to teach all of the subjects, of course. So the first day we had, I had my science methods course. I kind of went in a little bit grumbly. You know, I didn't really want to be there. I wasn't interested in science. And the professor came in and he just put an experiment down on the table. And he just tossed out a, you know, uh, a few comments and he said, I want everyone to make a hypothesis about what you think is going to happen here. And I, I just kind of, you know, he went around, it was small enough that everyone could say it out loud. And so I was wrong. And, and it was like the moment that happened, it's this, this light went on. I was so sure I was right and I was wrong. And, I, and, and that, that literally was like a turning point in my entire teaching career because I wanted to know why I was wrong. And so I went to the library and I started reading and then he came back in the next day and did another one and I was wrong again. And I said, oh my, and back to the library I went. And so this was a whole semester of him doing this and it just ignited this curiosity in me that no teacher had ever, you know, ignited. and. So I just said, this is what I want to do all day. I don't want to, I love language arts and I actually am certified to teach it and have taught it for Colby, but I just wanted to teach 
focus my major on um, science education. So I changed my specialization and then um, I love the middle school age. I know it's one that not everybody connects with, but I love that they're old enough that they can have these really amazing conversations, but they're young enough that there's, you know, still a little bit of, uh, you know, wanting to know what the, and I'm sure that that's the case in high school too, especially at Colby, but I just love that middle age. And, and so I focused on middle school science and um, I feel the same as Elizabeth. I, I never had um, any professors challenge faith in my science courses. Ironically, I did in a few other courses, but for the most part, I felt like my science professors were very open to, um, you know, all possible explanations of everything. And so it was a, a, a period of growth for me. And I feel the same way, just all the topics that we study, I always say to my students, it, it, it for me, it, it proves the creator. I know it doesn't, you know, in, in a, a human sense, prove it, but just the, the master blueprint of it all, I, I'm just in constant awe of it. And I try to draw that in, you know, to our conversations whenever we see things that, you know, we say blow our minds. We're like, that's, that's the awesomeness of God. I love the story of the, of the first experience in those science classes. I applaud you for your response to when it didn't go as you expected to and how you delved in more deeply to figure that out. That's great. Mrs. Bradley, tell us your science story. Well, so for my family, um, we didn't really have a sciencey background. Um, my mother was in real estate. My dad was an engineer. So he, he was mathematical, but not really sciencey. Um, but for me, I always loved animals. And my life goal was to be a veterinarian. That was what I was going to do. Um, I started working at a vet's office when I was 14. I was like, this is it. And um, in high school, I had an amazing anatomy and physiology teacher, absolutely loved her um, and really drove home my love for, for science and, and biology. And, um, and then I went to college and I was um, in animal and dairy science and just seeing how complex and different all of the different animals are in God's creations and just how amazingly and how perfectly they're designed to actually work the right way just really um just increased my um i guess my my love for science and just how amazing god is and how how perfectly created everything is to work together um and so i i try to bring that into into the classroom especially when um we talk about how intricate things are like cells like miss hoxie said um you know and just how amazing amazing it is and how how perfectly designed it really is but i never really had any um any of my science instructors question anything it was always you know here's all the possibilities just like mrs still said and i don't know if that's you know i went to a catholic high school um i went to a school in the south where god is still very prevalent even in a public institution mm -hmm. and so that's my story. <laughs> mm -hmm. So do you think then that it is more one of those um, sort of conventional wisdom kind of things that that people will encounter these serious challenges to the faith from from scientists for students going into scientific studies in higher education and f further on from there? Do you think it 
there's less of that than we tend to think there is? Or have you heard back from Colby students who have encountered that? I think it's definitely a possibility uh, that students will be challenged. One of the other teachers in our department said that she had um, a couple of professors in college who really grilled her on her faith. So I think, you know, for for um, for our high school students who are graduating and getting ready for college, my advice to them would be don't be afraid, but do be prepared. I think that uh, that students really need to know their faith well, um, but also know the science well, um, get familiar with the kind of hot button topics, do lots of reading, know what the church teaches, know what the science says, and know how to respond. I do think STEM students are in a really unique environment for evangelization. I think, you know, those maybe the, the atheistic professor that they might encounter probably isn't expecting a student like our Colby students who are so well formed in their faith and who are also just, I mean, very smart. Our students are very smart. Um, and so I think they're bringing a lot with them. And, and that's, a, that's a right field for evangelization right there. So um, don't be afraid, but do be prepared would be my advice for high schoolers. I was going to say, you know, for me, the few times that I encountered that were actually not in science courses. So I would also add that in, you know, it definitely be prepared that it will happen, but it may not be in your science courses. So I do think in higher education, that's just something that you will ultimately encounter. But um, I just feel like it's so encouraging the number of scientists I've met, physicians who are so faith-filled that also share the same experience that they certainly encountered the opposition, but it, it may or may not have been in their science courses. So I think our students, no matter what they study in higher education, you know, may encounter it. So it shouldn't hopefully deter anyone from um, pursuing science. It's really interesting to me. And so I'm trying to go back and think about the, the encounters where I see the opposition or where, where this idea of science and the faith or science and the church being separated and you're going through history and it's like okay well you know the church has has always supported truth and and the pursuit of a better understanding of god's creation but but there are all of those well there's a lot of false narratives i guess that, that come along but that's because it's been my experiences as well that certainly that's studying the have a background at Thomas Aqu liberal arts degree at Thomas Aquinas College, and then a civil engineering degree at a at a secular school. So I got to see it from both sides. You know, you get to read Galileo and Newton and Darwin and Einstein and all of these things at Thomas Aquinas College, but then also see it from a physics chemistry courses at a secular school. And you could always put things together. And actually, the like my chemistry instructor at at the secular school was a very devout. Christian and talked openly about how this really kind of reflected creation at times. I mean, it wasn't every day, but he would occasionally throw that in there. So, yeah, it's got to think more about, about this because I know I know I know it's out there, but I I'm not I I couldn't right now point my finger at exactly why that happens. I was doing some reading on the Society for Catholic Scientists website in, in preparation for this, and their statistic is that roughly 50% of the scientific community says that they are people of faith. And I thought, well, that can't be, you know, any better or worse than any other discipline. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has is just the narrative um, that scientists are atheists and that the way it is, but that's not really reflective of, uh, of our experience, certainly.
or the statistics. They also mentioned, and I thought this was really interesting, that this kind of separation between faith and science seems to be a uniquely Western phenomena. In non-Western countries, scientists are a little bemused by the idea that faith and science ought to be kept separate, which I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. Let's let's turn now to the Colby Science curriculum and talk a little bit about that. Whether students take Colby's science courses online or at home, families quickly come to recognize the robust nature of the curriculum. We've been wanting to, to discuss Colby Science curriculum for a long time, so let's dive into it. Uh, I, we've noticed from the get-go the use of, of Colby's secular science textbooks and thought that was interesting. And as the as the kids have gotten older and into more advanced science courses, the introduction of church documents paired with the secular textbooks. So uh, would you talk to us a bit about what goes into the development of the of the science curriculum that, that Colby uses um, and how you craft these courses so beautifully? Yeah. Um, so one of the questions that we do get is, why do you use secular textbooks? Because that does kind of make us unique among at least other Christian homeschooling programs. And I think the short answer to that is that science does not need to be watered down or diluted to be palatable to Catholics. So we, we very deliberately choose secular textbooks for all of our science courses because we do want our students to have a really robust and challenging and vigorous science education. Uh, it's, it's like Steve was mentioning before that the, the voices on either side of this supposed war between faith and science in the public sphere are quite loud. And I think it's easy for Catholics to kind of be sucked into that and feel like they have to choose one or the other. But the idea that belief somehow precludes scientific investigation is completely foreign to the church. Uh, if you look back at the history of the church, it wasn't until um, even the 19th century for other Christian denominations that this tension came up just looking at the lives of the saints. And this is something that we do with our students as well. We try to show them, you know, who are these great Catholic scientists? And so St. Albert the Great is a popular one, teacher of St. Thomas Aquinas. He's credited with developing the scientific method. Um, another one is uh, now venerable Jerome Lejeune, who's discovered the cause of Down syndrome. He's called the father of modern genetics. I know blessed Nicholas Steno, who's the father of geology, comes up in Mrs. Still's earth science class, and Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, and we could just go on and on. You know, the, the church has just a long, long history of great scientists who have brought so much to the field. So we use secular textbooks because the Catholic scientist doesn't really have any need to go on the defensive. We aren't under attack. We're not threatened by scientific discovery or advancement. And really Catholics should and, and have been historically on the cutting edge of scientific advancement because of our faith and um, not in spite of it. So uh, as far as the process of curriculum sele selection goes, um, science changes. And so we do try to keep up with those changes with our curriculum while at the same time respecting our family's budgets because science textbooks are expensive. So we're not, you know, changing to the new edition every every year for that reason. But it, it kind of depends on the course, you know, physics doesn't change a whole lot. Um, and so we are just now in the process of changing our physics textbook because um, because we don't have a choice. Uh, but with other with other textbooks like the biology textbook and um, 
life science as well. We evaluate, you know, maybe every seven, eight years, uh, the need for a new textbook and a new curriculum. And then the, the process of curriculum development, again, depends on the course. Um, some courses lend themselves a little bit more to the faith science discussion than others. Um, in biology, there are so many topics that come up that really bring that conversation into the classroom or into homes for families. And so we will go through the textbook and kind of pick out those topics. And then in the course plan, provide parents with some guidance on uh, how, to, how to have this conversation. What does the church say? Here's support from church documents. So with the, the biology course plan, I wrote that a couple of years ago, some of the topics that came up were things like um, cloning and stem cell research and uh, evolution. And so, um, you know, the, the course plan has lots of catechism references in there. And then with that course, we have our students read sections of Humanity Generis which they also read in their theology class. And then the students read a book by Cardinal Schoenborn called Chance or Purpose, uh, because we have a whole textbook unit on the subject of evolution. And then we have a conversation about the theology and the philosophy, because that's that's definitely one of those hot button issues, you know, students are gonna be challenged on later on. So we do that with our ninth graders. Um, and then, you know, again, very dependent on the course, but, uh, Mrs. Spencer, who's our physics teacher, was talking um, with me about how she presents the Galileo, the, the Galileo controversy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is not really a controversy at all. But so she has her students do presentations on other scientists of Galileo's day to put all of that, everything that happened into the context of, you know, what was happening in the scientific community in Galileo's day, what was happening in the church. That's wonderful. I've really appreciated the. I I haven't done any homeschool, high school science courses. Our our kids have taken the online courses for high school science, but our younger students, upper elementary and up into life science, we've done. We've worked through the homeschool courses, and I, I so appreciate the references to. Here's where you find what the church teaches on this here, and such things because it it does come up, and and of course I can. I can go looking for things, but it really has helped to have those right there at my fingertips to to delve in more deeply and be able to have better conversations with our kids. So I really appreciate the way they've, they've been crafted that way. I think especially this topic of evolution, that's one thing that I've just been working with our youngest on in, in the self-paced life science course. That seems to be such a black and white, either in the popular narrative, right? either you believe in it or you don't. And there's such, there's more to it than that. <laughs> it's just helpful to even just address that head on. It, there's more to it than, than just yes or no. Yes, that's something that has come up both for me this year in um, earth science and in life science. And and sometimes the conversation is driven by the questions that you receive, of course, from your students. And in the life science curriculum, evolution is really just addressed as um, change over time and, and adaptation to environment. And then in in earth science, you know, we, we look at the overview of the, of the geologic time scale and the fossil record. So the questions become more pointed. So then I have to kind of go there, you know, so, um, but we've had that conversation amongst uh, the, the science department, which was so enlightening for me uh, this past year as we're examining, you know, how do we, you know, examine the theory of evolution without, um, you know, because the kids, some of the kids just kind of put their hands up, you know, and they, they're not really um, open to just examining it, let alone 
tying it into faith. So um, we've talked about that a lot as teachers, you know, how can we um, always make God present in everything that we're studying? And it, it is so interesting to me, the more I study about evolution and just the theory of it, the more, you know, again, affirming it is like my, for, for my faith. And it is a little tricky sometimes getting that across to students, but God's order of things. And even just, you know, looking at Genesis, that the, the, the uh, abiotic environment came first, the non-living came first, and then the living. And it, it kind of matches the fossil record. It mirrors it in many ways. And the simplest organisms came first and we, we were last and it, it all kind of matches up. So it's, it's challenging, but it's also, I think, you know, as Elizabeth said, really important that they understand this now so that, you know, when they, they do reach college and they are challenged, they have very thoughtful answers and they've examined it themselves. And, and it doesn't scare them about their own faith. And I think sometimes they do get frightened that if they examine just the theory of evolution, that they're dishonoring their faith in some way. And so that, that they're exposed to this early, I think is really help, helpful, especially if they do end up really pursuing science. And I think that's another reason that, that the secular textbooks are so important is because, especially with the topic of evolution, but other topics as well, a lot of times students come with misconceptions about what a theory actually is. And so, and you know, if you ask the general population, what is evolution? They might say something about monkeys turning into humans. You know, that's kind of the, like, mm-hmm. that's the idea of what evolution is. And so um, a lot of times our students are really kind of surprised by what the science of evolution, evolutionary theory actually says when we get into, um, especially in biology, when we're talking about the different isolation events and the process of speciation, they're, they're kind of like, oh, this really isn't so bad, you know, this kind of makes sense. Um, And so I, you know, I think it's important to step them through the, what the science is before you even get to kind of the, the theology and the philosophy and and that those areas of conflict. I think that's a really great point about the, the idea of theory and understanding what, what, what we're talking about these, these days. I think as I was, as I'm trying to go back and think about the different problems, that's, that seems to be one of the most fundamental underlying problems that I see is that people don't understand what modern scientific thought is like. And it's hard now because everything is so specialized. So, you know, when I was teaching physics and they say, well, they shot a single particle through this slit and it it diffracted. It's like, well, I have no clue actually how that scientific experiment worked. There's just an agreement amongst people that that's what happened. So for me, I have to take it basically on faith because I don't, at this point in my life at least, I don't have the capability of going back and doing the calculus and the the things needed to actually verify on my own that this really did happen. So yeah, and then there's things that have changed quite a bit. So if you go back and read Darwin, that's not evolutionary theory today. That it's It's a completely different thing. And I can go back and you can read Newton and you can say, well, clearly his theories are based on some strange principles, but we have Einstein and quantum mechanics and things that come after that as well. So it's not like, and oftentimes when I would teach physics, it seemed like the world ended when Newton had his Principia, but it's, it's evolving and the models change and people discover new things. And so 
what we're seeing today is the the current model or theory may be very look very different in five years and 20 years and 100 years yeah i we start the the school year in biology with the discussion on what a scientist is and um, and what science is and i uh, tell the students you know science is a is a body of knowledge that's constantly in flux and scientists are always building on the work of scientists who preceded them but also nothing makes a scientist happier than to refute the uh the discoveries of some other scientists you know they're always looking for that opportunity to turn everything on its head so exactly like you said Stephen, um the theory of evolution now doesn't look anything like it did when Darwin proposed it. It has evolved, so to speak, and it will continue to change as more evidence is introduced. And, and that is a scientific process. So that's an important thing for our students to understand. Yeah, I know uh, Einstein in his, he has a book called The Evolution of Physics, which he wrote just kind of for the common man to explain um, basically relativity and quantum mechanics and, and the development there. But he talks about it as a uh, like a Sherlock Holmes, a detective who's looking for clues. And so you, you have a model, a theory, but then there's a clue that doesn't quite fit. And so that's where you kind of look to see, is there a better way to explain things, which includes that clue. So yeah, it's that, yeah, I love, I love how the right way of looking at how, what a theory is and, and uh, developing that. Helpful to define the term even, what, is, what does theory mean? It's been it's been really instructive to me going through the science courses that I have with our children. I've learned so much myself going along along with them, learning alongside with them, and and then that has sparked my curiosity to learn more, both about scientific things that we've studied in the course and theological things too. That's really it's done a lot for me as well as for them. All right, so do you all have any suggestions or resources for aspiring scientists among the Colby community? I can go first, but then I would love uh, Katie and, and Anne to speak. Um, so I would say I I have uh, my oldest is ten, and I have five kiddos at home, and I know and we homeschool our kids, and so I know that as a homeschooling mom myself, it's really hard to sometimes set aside measurable success. Um, there's so much pressure to get through you know 200 workbook pages by June or spend six hours a day on book learning, but I really think that the best thing for young learners, for aspiring scientists, is to do science, and the beginning of the scientific method is observation, um, and I tell my students that a good scientist is a lot like a three-year-old. They ask why, 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 and they won't give up until they have a satisfactory answer. Um, young children are, are really just natural scientists. Uh, yesterday, my six-year-old spent 10 minutes hitting a dishpan of water at different angles to see how the vibrations would create ripples. And then she added soap and did it all over again. And part of me wanted to say, stop hitting stuff. Um, but that's how scientists are made, right? They uh, they observe and they and they do so I would just encourage parents to let their children get into nature, get their hands dirty, um, and then offer up the mess. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Bradley has her students do nature journaling. So maybe maybe Mrs. Bradley could speak to that a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so I have my, my life science students and even my high school biology student, students do a nature journal. So it is... Um, an opportunity for them to take what we're learning in the classroom and then get out in God's creation and observe that actual learning in their areas. I even have my um, my high schoolers this last time, they did a, a video nature journal. I went on park 
walks with them. Um, I saw a pond from someone else. We were talking about different plants and it's just um, connecting that science to God's creations and getting out there and not just learning it from a book through a lecture, actually getting out there and just observing it one-on-one. And, and several of mine, you know, it's snowing where they are, but they still get out there and they still are observing and, and doing. And it's amazing because um, I was just going through some today and they come up with more questions than what they answer in the nature journal. So they're like, oh, I observed, you know, this on this plant. What could that be? Why is it there? What's causing? And I'm like, that is awesome. That is exactly what I want them to keep doing is just keep questioning, find out more, become lifelong learners, especially in science. And it's really been very, very fruitful this year, um, incorporating that into the classroom. That's a great idea to put into use here at home too with those of us working through our homeschool courses. I just wanted to mention real quick, there's a lovely book that came out um, not too long ago for elementary students called Brilliant 25 Catholic Scientists, Mathematicians, and Super Smart People. And as a mom of three girls, I appreciate that about a third of the stories are about female scientists, um, but the, the illustrations are, are gorgeous and it's just these stories of Catholic scientists and mathematicians. Um, so that would be a great resource for parents of elementary students. Mm-hmm. We have that book. Yeah, it's a good one. One of the things that you, you're talking about, but maybe not pointing out, is your example. Um, so like parents out there, I mean, model wonder, right? I mean, we get kind of deadened to all of these fantastic things that were around. I mean, I like to make bread. And you, if you're sitting there with your child, and it's like, isn't this amazing? We just throw these things together and all of a sudden you it rises and you've got this different sort of thing. And then you can, you know, go and start talking about how alcohol is being formed and carbon dioxide. So it's like a bottle of champagne, but uh, you know, it ends up being bread in the end, you know? (laughs) So there's just modeling these things as parents and saying, Hey, look at this. Let's, why is this? Or what kind of bug is this? Just let's look at it and see if we can figure out what it is. And your example is teachers as well as doing the same thing to let them know, yeah, it's okay to, it's it's actually good. It's wonderful to look at the world and just marvel at it, at the at the order and the, and the beauty and sometimes the ugliness, you know, of, of things, but the the interest of all of those. Yeah, I think that the, the power of curiosity is just the greatest motivator for learning. And I was, while, while y'all were speaking, I was actually digging for this book and I couldn't put my fingers on it. I didn't think to bring it. But there was a book that I came across when I was in college and it was, it was simple experiments using household materials. And I, I still use so many of those experiments as staples in my, in my teaching. And, and the, the name and the author is escaping me because I just absorbed it all. And I, I don't have to use it anymore, Uh, but I'll, I'll dig it up and send it to you. But the, the greatest thing about it is it's all stuff that pretty much anyone would have on hand. And I think, you know, if, if parents can get a hold of some resources with household materials, because it, it is a bit daunting if you want to do an experiment with your child and you have to go to the store and you have to buy. But there there are resources where it's just things that you have in your house. And I try to mostly do experiments with my students on camera where the materials are, are going to already be in their house. 
every once in a while say, okay, go get a glass of water and a piece of paper and come back, you know? And the other day we did one all on camera together and it, it wasn't even part of our curriculum, but we hadn't been able to do a lab for a while because we were studying the fossil record. So it wasn't really lending itself to a hands-on. And they said, oh, we missed doing labs. I'm like, okay, go grab a, a piece of paper and a glass of water. And um, we did an experiment together. And so I think making it easy on ourselves, if you want to organize it a little bit, is to to find some experiments, things that you can do. And, and I'll do that with my, my kids sometimes too. You know, I'll just toss something out like that professor that I had. Okay, what do you think is going to happen here? You know, why or why not? So that was one of the most powerful things for me um, personally as a student. And then it seems to be the thing that my students love the most. And and I wish I could do more. It's it's a bit tricky, you know, teaching in a in an online environment to do as many lab experiments as I would like to do. And then sometimes, like I said, the curriculum lends itself to it better than others. You know, some topics just lend themselves better than others to doing experiments. But I just think it's a pretty universal um, reaction among students. They love doing hands-on, even if it's the most simple thing with the most simple materials. It just lights them on fire and it and it, it ignites that curiosity. And that's what's going to make them, in my opinion, you know, the lifelong learners is just that innate sense of wanting to know why. Our first pass through one of your life science courses, this is still a couple of years ago, there was a lab that came up and uh, my son brought me the list of of items. I was like, oh, we can do, we got this. We can do this. It was really very much like, okay, <laughs> we can handle that. <laughs> I think he then went on to record a video to send to his younger cousins. Like, look at this. And he did it, re recreated it for them. So it was a hit. Oh, that's great. And there are so many things just around that you can, I mean, so sometimes you have to, again, you have to think about it. But I, I remember when I was teaching high school physics at, at one point, we were talking about water flow and it's just like, well, turn on your sink and sketch what that looks like you know so they're noticing okay the, so the water gets thinner as it goes down and, and so okay so why is that you know you can you can start thinking about them why does that happen what what's the you know what did we learn in physics that's going to tell us something about this so that yeah. it's there every single time you turn the faucet on you just have to see it i guess for for an experiment I wanted to go back uh, for a second to Steve's point about modeling awe and wonder, because I, I think that really just sums it up. Um, the catechism in the first couple of paragraphs talks about how uh, the human being can know with certainty that God exists just by being out in creation. So even if nobody says anything uh, about, even if with no catechesis, no mention of God, the human person could know that God exists just by looking at creation. And so I think, like you said, as adults, we kind of lose our sense of wonder and, and we need to regain that science is in many ways an act of worship if it's science done by a person of faith, because when you uh, when you get out into creation, you see the revelation of God, the goodness and the love of our creator. So, um, yeah, as parents, we need to, you know, <laughs> let go of our cynicism a little bit and be with our children in their, in their natural wonder. They haven't, they haven't become immune to that yet. Um, and we need to go down to their level, become like little children in order to, um, to really appreciate the, the beauty of God's creation. Learning alongside them in this way has helped, has helped me in that, in that endeavor. Yeah. Not, not great at it still, but it has certainly helped. <laughs> 
Okay, so do you have some tips for older students near the end of the Colby Road and their families with regard to um, if they're if they're considering entering scientific fields and, and further studies after their Colby years are finished? Yeah, so I would say that uh, that faith is not an excuse to be a, a poor or mediocre scientist. Um, if you decide to study science, then you need to commit to that and um, and really take on that challenge and be excellent in your field. Uh, and then, like I was saying before, you know, but I think this is really for for any discipline you might be studying. Just be prepared for the challenges to your faith that you might encounter in the field of of academics. I think also. Uh, for parents and for science-minded high school students, there are a lot of resources out there for learning about the relationship between faith and science. I mentioned the Society for Catholic Scientists. They have um, a lot of videos and articles uh, that are, are great reading. There's some really wonderful books and then uh, church documents. Um, the Pontifical Academy for the Sciences has a lot of resources. So it just find out what's out there um, and, and start reading and read as much as you can to grow in your faith and also to grow in your study of the sciences. Good deal. The Colby experience is so, so involves so much with critical thinking and really looking at things. Um, so we're really blessed as faithful Catholics that we have this clear roadmap. We know God exists. We know that he became man. He saved us. Um, we've got all of these things. And anytime somebody says, here's science and it's opposed to the faith, it's like, okay, clearly, clearly you're wrong, right? So, but now let's look at what they're saying and why they say this is opposed to the faith or this is the reason because, you know, the truth isn't there. It's not on that side, but we need to be able to look at what's being said and say, okay, here's here's the critical part that's that's an error in your in your argument or let's look at what they're saying and see where the truth is and where the falsity is but but obviously we know there can't be opposition there so um I, we're really blessed i think as catholics to have that certainty and that confidence to go and search for the truth mm -hmm. all right so this has been such a fun conversation it's really been it's been given me an opportunity to think about in gratitude for the Colby Science curriculum and the things I have learned from it and the, the things I have shared with my kids going through it. So really grateful for all that you have put into that and making it such a good experience for them and for the online courses that they take now that they, they really, those are among their favorites. They really enjoy them and tell us a lot about them and, and are getting a lot out of them. So thank you for all of your work and, and bringing your example and your lived faith experience to those as well. So in the show notes for this episode, we'll be adding some links to, like I said, the episode where we met Mrs. Hoxie on episode 21, along with a couple of others where we've at least touched on some scientific topics. We had a fun conversation with a Colby mom, Mrs. Louise Deal, in episode number 42 called Let Them Tinker, and she spoke to her experience as a scientist and her children's experience in that way and how it worked well with, her, with their Colby experience. We also got to visit with Colby alumna Aviva Lund on episode number 26 called Truth in Person. We'll link that. That was a fun conversation. She is pursuing scientific studies in higher education. So uh, those will be there in the notes along with some other references and links. Mrs. Hoxie has compiled for us a beautiful list of books and resources that we will include, including the brilliant, the scientist, the book of 25 scientists that we were discussing earlier. And the cell video you mentioned and, and the 
a couple of other books. Do you want to tell us more about the resources that you chose, Mrs. Hoxie? Those look great. Yeah, absolutely. I um, put together a list of resources that have been beneficial to me as a teacher and also as a homeschool parent. So uh, the cell video that I watched back in high school and that I showed to show to my students is there, um, as well as a link to the Society of Catholic Scientists also mentioned has a lot of great resources. Um, I'm currently reading a book that is titled In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation in the Fall, which is um, just fascinating. It is a collection of homilies given by Pope Benedict XVI while he was still Cardinal Ratzinger on the subject of creation and interpretation of the Genesis creation stories. And then he also brings in um, stewardship. So what does it mean to be a, a good steward of God's creation? And he touches on the topic of evolution. So highly recommend. It's a short little book, but has been really helpful to me. And then another book, maybe just kind of for fun is, would you baptize an extraterrestrial and other questions from the astronomers inbox at the Vatican Observatory, which is a collection of questions that, um, the Jesuits at the Vatican Observatory have received and their responses to it. It's just beautifully written. It's a lot of fun. So I recommend that one. And then Particles of Faith, A Catholic Guide to Navigating Science is a book written by Dr. Stacy Trisinkos, who taught for Colby some years ago. And, um, and she addresses a lot of those hot button issues as well. Fantastic. Those all sound great. When you mentioned the Vatican Observatory, I think they have a podcast, if I'm not mistaken. I'm behind in my podcast listening, but I think they did at least at one time. They, I don't know if they're still making episodes, but I think it does. there is one out there. I learned uh, the other day that there are 35 lunar craters that are named for Jesuits. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, neat. I was going to say there's, um, and I'll send you the link for it, but um, John Muir Laws has a great website on nature journaling and how to get started. And he has several several books on nature journaling and how to draw and all of those kind of things. So that that's a great jumping off point for anyone who's looking more into nature journaling, how to do it. Um, you know, it, there's no real right way to do it, but that for anyone who's, who's not quite sure how to get started, it's a great place to just kind of look at, look around on their website and get some ideas. Good deal. That sounds great. Well, I'm sure glad that we have gotten to spend this time together. Thank you so much, Mrs. Hoxie, Mrs. Still, and Mrs. Bradley for coming to visit with us and sharing your experiences, your science stories. We sure enjoyed hearing those and appreciate all you do for Colby and our families. Thank you so much for coming on the Colby Cast. We hope you'll be back with us soon. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. If you haven't already, Subscribe to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.